Welcome, everyone. Welcome again to 2024. Welcome to Faith Evangelical Church. And we are excited to jump back into Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. And we are going to be in verses 25 through 29. And this is again a one of those sermons that's just going to be incredible. I'm just kidding. You remember the last time, right? I spoke on this passage. I promised you one of the best sermons ever. And uh, I didn't live up to it that time. So I'm going to try to make up for it here. What I mean by that is that when a pa- I guess when a pastor says that, it hasn't really much to do with uh, what he's going to say. It's the excitement over what it is that we're going to talk about. And this is one of my most exciting uh, passages here in Hebrews because it's sort of what we've been leading up to the whole entire book. And this is sort of a part two of where we continued about three weeks ago because we had Christmas and then, and then New Year's. Um, I want to cover that passage again before we, before we jump in. But this is one of those very exciting passages. It's one of those things where when you, I don't know about you, but when I, I used to, I'd be, I was infatuated with bridges when I was younger. And I used to have my father drive me over every bridge into Philadelphia, Walt Whitman, the Ben Franklin, the Betsy Ross. And I, I loved going up, uh, especially the Walt Whitman, the biggest one. Because it gave me the highest view of the city in Philadelphia. I love that. And then when I got older, I always used to request the window seat. Because I would love coming, especially from the south at night, when you're flying into Philadelphia, the pilot will wing around the the city of Philly. And if you have the right window seat, you can just, for a second, get a glimpse. And if you don't have the window seat, you can sort of look through. And it's just such an amazing, amazing view. Then you get to the airport, you get in your car, you drive in the city, but it's completely different. It's almost like two different places. And this passage is sort of like that. It brings us up super, super, super high. We're able to see this magnificent picture of what the writer has been leading up to, what we've been traveling to the whole entire time. We're going to take a descent back into the chapter, but here at this point, we're going to be up high. And we're going to look at this amazing picture of the kingdom and actually not even the kingdom necessarily to come, but the kingdom that has already been launched. So with that said, I'm going to start by reading. And, and uh, if Randy and Dom, you could just keep up verse 25 up there. I'm going to read a few passages before. This is verse 18. I want to start here because this all goes together. So this won't be on your screens. It says, for you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be even spoken to them. He's talking about the old covenant. He's talking about Mount Sinai here. For they could not even bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it's going to be stoned. This is where God was present. They were terrified in the Old Testament to go near this mountain. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. Now that's the contrast, part one. Here's the contrast, that's part one. The contrast is, but you, speaking to the Hebrew people and speaking to us, we're not going to Mount Sinai where it's dark and gloomy and terrifying and we're not even able to come close to the mountain or we'll get poofed. 
No, we have come to Mount Zion. And that's another word for the, the Jerusalem or the new Jerusalem. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And so we see this amazing revelation here that everything that what we knew about God in the Old Testament, about how to approach him, about trembling as we go through, having have to be the right genealogy, having to be of the right tribe, having to be either a priest or, or either the high priest, having to go through the ceremonies, the sacrifices, all those things just to get into worship God. Now we see a huge contrast, but you haven't come to that. Now you've come with the gateway wide open. And you are now joined with the church of the firstborn. You are now in the heavenly Jerusalem. And everything is there. They mention it all. But the angels, God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, it's all there. But I thought this was all going to be after I pass and I go up to heaven is when I'm going to see all those things. Well, it starts now is what the Hebrew writer is saying. But it gets even, it gets even better than that. And now we're going to jump into our, our passage. But before that, what I, really, what I started out by saying, you know, the sermon, what we write so critically important is because once we get this contrast of the old as opposed to where we're at right now in the new, the present reality of us living in the presence of God, in the presence of the kingdom, once we get to that acknowledgement, we now have created a lens that we could lay over all of the scripture that you can now have an interpretive method to understand things in the New Testament, mostly, and also in the Old Testament. Things such as temple, when we see temple in the New Testament. What is that referring to? Well, if we don't understand the contrast, we can often take time, unless it's literally referring to the, like when Peter and John went to the temple, it's talking about the physical temple. But when it talks about the temple in other places in the New Testament, it's talking about the church, your body, and ultimately Jesus himself. He is the temple of God. Old priests, new priesthood. Old covenant, new covenant. Israel, church. Um, circumcision of the flesh, circumcision of the heart. And you could just go down the line in every single case, a, the representative of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the new in a spiritual way. This is so important that we get this. Because if we don't get this and we start looking for new temples, physical new temples, physical new priests, physical new rituals, physical new countries popping up, Israel and so forth and so on, and we eliminate the spiritual, we're going to be out of focus and we're going to misinterpret the scripture. So what the passage now does when it goes into our passage for today, which I haven't gotten to yet, 
It now elaborates even further and shows to the, to the extent not only what God is doing, but what the writer's trying to communicate here to me is super eye-opening. Verse 25. And again, and, and, uh, if there's any argument that this is not the same writer who wrote the remainder of the, or the previous sections of the book, here's another warning. And it's really not even the last one in the book, but it's one of the last real firm ones. To see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. It says, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And it says, verse 26, and his voice shook the earth then. <clears throat> Notice all the allusions to voice, speaking, hearing. His voice shook the earth then, but now he's promised saying, <clears throat> excuse me, once more, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. You see, that's in all caps. That's referring back to Haggai, which Wayne just read from. I say Haggai, he says Haggai. Both right, I guess. This expression, it says in verse 27, once yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So glad he added that in there at the last. It seems to be that he's saying here, well, you know what? See that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Because I'm going to shake the earth, not only, and I'm, I'm also going to shake the heavens, and I'm going to remove all those things which are invisible, or which are physical. I'm going to remove all those things which can be seen, so that we can receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And it says here that these things that are there now are going to be eliminated, and we're only going to be able to see these invisible things when we get off into heaven. And that's oftentimes, that's how this passage is interpreted. It's interpreted as an eschatological passage of the end. At the end of time, this is going to happen. When, Jesus, when, the, when the Bible says, yet once more, I'm going to remove those things which cannot be shaken. And again, he's referring back to our old passage, our Old Testament reading. But what he is in fact talking about is something that's very imminent to what they are involved in right now, and that is they're under persecution. We have the Jewish believers that were part of their congregation that were defecting, apostatizing, and they were going back to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament law. And then behind all of this are the words of Jesus. In Matthew 24, in Luke 21 and Mark 13, where Jesus prophesied that in a very short time, because we're right around A.D. 64, A.D. 65 here, but Jesus prophesied during his earthly ministry that Jerusalem was going to be completely wiped out within one generation of his death. And so that's what's in the air right now. In A.D. 65, there was rebellion already starting, 
It wasn't the Romans that said, hey, let's go destroy Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem that was making problems for Rome. They were rebelling. The zealots were taking over. They were causing problems. They were causing fires. They were doing, they were rioting. They were doing all those things. And this had already started to happen around this time until all-out war came around A.D. 66-67 with Rome. And that lasted for about three years. And that's when Jerusalem was completely wiped out. So why is this so important? Well, first of all, what we have to understand here is, again, this temple theology. This idea of the earth being the temple of God. We, if you've come in our Sunday Bible school, our Sunday Bible school, our Sunday Bible studies, we've been talking uh, about this um, a lot. We've been we've been digging into um, how this uh, how the kingdom is coming into the world, and how that kingdom originally started in the Garden of Eden as a temple story, with Adam and Eve in the garden being God creating the world and him putting his image in that temple. And then everything falling apart. And so God is now redoing, he's reinstituting what began in the garden. He's reinstituting that in Christ, in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus came alive and he took us, as we talked about today, that we are no longer under Adam's headship. We've moved and now we are under Christ. But what are we to do with this, this truth? What are we to do when we, when we take this idea of being this, I don't know, this renewed humanity? Are we now to wait for that to kick in until the very end, until the resurrection? Well, what this Bible, what this passage is talking about right here is that this is beginning there and now for the people of the, the readers of this, uh, of this letter. Now, if you go back to Haggai chapter 2, the, what we read in the Old Testament, um, what Wayne read in the Old Testament, the parallels to this aren't just coincidental. He just didn't, usually when you see a New Testament writer pick something out of the Old Testament, it's not just that one little proof text that he wants you to look at. He wants you to go back to that Old Testament passage and look at the whole chapter. And that's why I or really look at the context of what's going on at least. And when you go back to Haggai, we have Zerubbabel and we have Joshua, the high priest. Now, I don't know if you remember, but when we were in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was the one who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. <clears throat> But before Nehemiah came to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, you'll read in Ezra chapter 1 through chapter 7 that Zerubbabel and Joshua were told to go and they were commissioned to rebuild the temple. But they were doing it under a lot of persecution. So what God did is he sent Haggai and Zechariah and he said, go and prophesy to the people working on the temple and encourage them. And that's what Haggai was doing. And when you look, you see that it says, God is telling them, don't be afraid, keep working. And if you read these passages, you'll see that they were under intense persecution trying to build the temple. They did rebuild the temple. But 
it really wasn't that good. It was nowhere near like the original temple that they knew about. So that's why God is saying to them, don't, this isn't that, don't worry, this doesn't have the glory of the old temple, but wait do you see what I am going to do. He says here, well, this, is what, this is what he says, for thus says the Lord, and this is in verses 6 and 7 of Haggai chapter 2, he says, once more in a little while, this is from our passage here, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, also the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So I think it's very important for us to understand that the writer of Hebrews is taking this passage out that talks about the destruction of the temple by Israel's enemies and the rebuilding of the temple by the power and, and, and providence of God, but also this little promise in there that God is going to do this once again. But when he does it the next time, people are going to come. He's using this crazy language, this hyperbolic language to say, this is going to be a temple like you've never seen before. Like I can't even, I can't even explain it. I will shake all the nations. They will come with the wealth of the nations and I will fill this house with glory. And so in order to understand the tie into this, what he's ultimately saying is he's tying in the destruction of the old temple and, and that, that they were rebuilding in Babylon. Stay with me here, guys. He's, he's, take, he's taking the old temple and he's paralleling it with this new temple that he's talking about here. Because he is talking, in essence, about a new temple undercover. He's saying here that once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this is a direct reference to the temple. And even in some, in some um, commentators, Jerusalem as well. In, Jew, in uh, Jewish literature, the temple was what they saw as the portal which, which connected heaven and earth. They called it the navel of the earth, or the gateway to heaven was the temple. And, so, and in many scriptures, they looked at the temple... And in some of the Old Testament scriptures, we're going to talk one that we see here, one in Haggai. The temple is actually referred to as heaven and earth and also um, Jerusalem as well. Isaiah 65, 17 to 18 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the formal things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. There's a tie in here. New heavens and new earth. Code word, Jerusalem, new temple. What our writer is trying to tell us here is that God is now doing something like he did before, but in a much bigger way. Well, how is he doing that if he's talking about the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed? How is he talking about that if he's saying here that the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, that those things which cannot be shaken, so they can remain? What is it that's remaining? What's remaining is all of the things, just like a blanket when it comes out, okay? You have to imagine the blanket is Jerusalem, okay? Inside the blanket is all the Old Testament law, all the Old Testament ceremonies, Every single thing in the Old Testament that is pointed and fulfilled in Christ, and it's shaken out. 
and all of those things go away, and they're all purged. And what is remaining? A kingdom. After you shake that blanket out, what is remaining is the kingdom of God that can never, ever be shaken. And so why is this so important? Because I know I don't feel like I'm doing a really great job on uh, trying to make this point land as much as, as much as I can. You don't have to act like I am. But uh, I, I, I'm just trying, I, I really want, I really, we may even spend more time on this so I could, uh, you know, make even uh, longer uh, things to say that make no sense. <laughs> but <clears throat> I really want you to understand here what this guy is saying, so I'm just going to tell you. He's basically saying that everything is about to be eliminated that is identified with the old system. Everything. The temple, the ceremonies, all of the elements, they're all going to be, they're all about to be wiped out. And so now what remains is what we must be about and what we must focus on. But it has a lot more to do than just what to do. It's about who now, where we are personally. We're no longer in that old Mount Sinai. We're now literally in that new mentality of Zion. And so what we have to focus on here is what's going out, yes, but also what our position is, is now, uh, with, now with, with what's coming in. And that position is in a spiritual kingdom with tremendous physical manifestations. See, don't confuse the spiritual kingdom with off up into heaven mentality. And that's where we've got to catch ourselves. We have to understand that spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. Okay? It doesn't mean non-physical. He's not talking necessarily about just spiritual or just about non He's talking about things that can't be shaken anymore. Immovable things. Things that are eternal. And that's what he's trying to communicate in a microcosm here in the context of the passage to the people that are listening to it. Look, Jerusalem's about to be destroyed. You're hanging on to everything that has to do with Jerusalem. When Jerusalem's destroyed, you're going to be destroyed with it. And coincidentally, they don't have any record of any Christians being killed in AD 70 Jerusalem invasion. The Christians said they did what Jesus told them to do. Flew to the hills in Judea and to the mountains and they hid and they didn't get killed. And so there he's saying, whatever you hang on to, if you're hanging on to all that, it's about to be wiped out. That's why he's went to such length about explaining the old covenant and the new covenant. Jesus now being the one who God speaks through. Because now we have a spiritual commission to go out and be those kingdom people and not and be looking for the right things. They're not waiting. He's not saying now this, this is going to be wiped around. Now what we got to do is just wait for a temple to be rebuilt in Israel. And then Jesus is going to return and sit in this temple and do all these things. That's nowhere mentioned in the New Testament at all. What's actually mentioned is the exact opposite. That Jesus is the new Israel. He is, he is the true Israel. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true circumcision. Jesus didn't just go down the line. And now we must put all of our faith and trust in him. But we can't miss the warning. Let go of the old. Let go of the old. And that is where this verse, for our God is a consuming fire. 
comes in so powerfully. Now, there's a lot of allusion here, obviously, to the fire in Jerusalem, right? There's a lot, and I could go, and there's, there's scriptures that Jesus talked about that we mentioned a couple weeks ago. You can go back to that sermon where he talked about all the judgment of Jerusalem coming on that specific generation. But this devouring fire, even Jesus says in Matthew 23, he says the way, he goes, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The picture is a, is a hen whose chicks are getting ready to burn in a barn fire, and the hen goes and covers the chicks and protects them. But Jesus is saying, you wouldn't let me do that to protect you from this destruction that's coming. So now your house, your temple, is going to be left desolate. And so all of those things are going to be wiped away and is going to literally come by fire, right? Because that's part of the whole destruction of Jerusalem. It was completely burned down to the ground. But there's also another reference to this, right? We see this throughout all the scriptures about God, even Jesus in Revelation 1.14. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. To the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Exodus 24, 15 to 17. And you could just keep going on about fire just being devoured before the Lord. And so, yes, that this is a very big picture of the power and the terror of God, but it's not supposed to mean that God is some big flamethrower that's just going to poof everybody that he comes up to because that's what he wants to do. The idea of fire is purification. Okay, and in the Old Testament law, things were purified. A lot of times things were, we see in the New Testament, we see the analogy of, of things being placed in the wood, the hay, the stubble being burned. But those things that remain after it's been torched by the fire, those things that remain are the things that are unshaken. Those are the things that are real. And so what we have to look at here is Jesus, just as we see this little microcosm here of this passage in its context in A.D. 70, warning these people that the old is going away, the new is now coming in, and the new is unshakable, this also has what they like to call a telescopic application. Application is not necessarily in the scripture, but this we see piecemeal this from the scripture that when Jesus does return his second time, when he comes back, he is going to come back like a refiner's fire. And he is going to come back and there is going to be a general resurrection. That means every single person that was ever born on this earth is going to be reunited with their body. And they are going to stand before God in judgment. And they are going to be tested. Now, I'm not talking about Christians and their works. That's going to happen. We're going to be refined. Our works are going to be tested. All the things we did for the kingdom is going to stay and remain and be applicable to the kingdom. And those things that we didn't, they're going to burn away and perish with the fire. All of the things that we've done. But also when those bodies resurrect. See, this is the concept of eternal hell, of being in hell, eternity, and eternally, is not necessarily just God going out to just torch people and torture them forever and eternity. 
It's by his very nature of who he is according to his holiness and justice and righteousness when he comes back into the earth to return and those that are risen from the dead are not covered by the blood. Poof. Dry leaf in front of a blast furnace. Just gone. Because of God's sheer character. Who he is. And so this is such a strong warning to these people to say, let go of the old system. And he's telling us, I believe, for application here, let go of the old life. Let, what is the old life? Just because you're not sinning and running around like you used to run around, you're good now? You see, the old life is, is, has less to do with that and more to do with your ideas and your worldview. The way you looked at life. The way you looked at your sin. The way you loved your sin. The way you love the comfort of going to that temple and going to those those you know to the synagogue talking like these guys they they love that they were raised with it I get my conscience is eased because I could look at the Torah and say I'm doing it the right way I need to hang on to this no you're not reading the Torah right it's pointing to Jesus no I'm hanging on to this this is my way this is the way I do things all right well you're going to be poofed. And so this idea of a consuming fire is a terrifying thing. Not because God is out there and he's going to just blast everyone away, but because by the sheer appearance of who he is, he is going to purify. And that's what makes all things new. That's how this earth is going to be all the dross and all the impurities and everything that's in this earth is going to be drained out. It's going to be made new. And that's when heaven's going to be allowed in. Well, it's really going to be the partly the cause of it coming, right? But sin's eradicated by Christ. Heaven and earth come in. We are now able to freely have fellowship with God, but we also now have peace with God. And that's something that these people did not have. They did not have peace with God because they did not have Christ. And so it's very simple. To have peace with God, you need to be justified. Justified means that by your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross and rose again and is seated as king, your faith now takes you in the court of God and gives you a not guilty righteous status where you can never be charged with any crime that you've ever committed ever again in the court of God. Past, present, future. And you are justified. And so when that purification comes, you are going to stand through it. You are going to come out pure. But if you're outside of Christ, the act in and of itself is going to take care of it. That's why the Bible says that people are thrown into the lake of fire it's not necessarily, I don't believe being tossed. I believe it's, it's almost like this is, it's like you're getting pushed off the edge. The power of the kingdom, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, people that just don't know Christ, they rejected Christ, they're outside of his blood, they're just, the new creation is fully coming in and it's pushing everything else out. And those that aren't in Christ are separated from God forever. And that's the warning I believe this, this writer is giving us here. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking to us. 
And so what is he talking about here? He's telling us right now, cling not to the old system, cling to Jesus Christ. Because in him, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. And we celebrate this here at Faith once a month through the Lord's Supper. And I say celebrate it um, because, I, you know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The, the, when we take and partake of the bread and we partake of the wine, we're remembering what I just, what I just told you about our salvation was procured by the blood of Christ, but also by him being punished as a criminal and his body taking the punishment for us. Literal blood spilling out. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. But then that flesh rose from the dead. And he is completely glorified. And that's what Jesus said. That you must, you just, you have to eat him like bread. Again, not physically, but spiritually appropriate, consume what he has done for you. And this is a symbol when we do this every week, or I'm sorry, every month, first uh, Sunday of every month, we try. We are looking back to that sacrifice, but we're also looking forward to what this meal means and does to us as well. Because when we are here, Guess what's happening when we, when we eat this meal? The gospel's being presented like visibly. And so it spiritually strengthens us. This is, a, this is a grace that God gives us, that he left us to be able to partake. There is the warning there to make sure your heart is right. You know, you, you want to make sure that when you come before the table, that you do it with the right heart says that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Examine yourself, the Bible says. In doing so, <clears throat> you, uh, when you examine yourself, it's, it's not saying, well, I'm really not, worth, I'm, I'm, I'm really not worthy of this. Uh, I sinned you know, on the way here today. and I sinned, or that, That's not what this is about. This is about a conscious decision in your mind right now to... to, to to grasp on to the grace that God has given you in that time. So if you're unable to do that, you can pass on the, on the, on the elements. No one's going to judge you and do anything like that. But if you have embraced that grace of Christ, you are a believer, I encourage you to partake with us. So with that said, I'd like to ask uh, Mary Beth to come on up and, uh, for, for communion and uh, any of the other worship team that's going to come up. And I'd like to ask Gregorio to come up and... Well, Gregorio and I will pass out the elements, hang on to them, and we'll all partake together. Do you be 
chapter 22 verses 14 to 20 it said when the hour had come he reclined at the table and the apostles with him and he said to them i have earnestly desired to eat this passover with you before i suffer for i say to you i should never i shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of god and when he had taken a cup and given thanks he said take this and share it among yourselves for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. <clears throat> and so when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to partake of the Lord Jesus Christ spiritually, Lord. And God, we, we desire to partake in his life. We ask for you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord.
Allow us to be the kingdom people that you've called us to be, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's close in praise to our King, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ.